pleased to be a part of the four female astronauts on board the ISS. It was a Guinness World Record at that time, and I hope somebody will break the record <laughs> in the future. Welcome to episode five of the Big Interviews Astronauts mini series, in which we sit down with pioneers who've left their mark on space exploration history. This series of The Big Interview is produced alongside the AIM Higher Gala in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 16 and the future of international space travel. This week, we met Naoko Yamazaki, an engineer and former astronaut at the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. Naoko made space history as the second Japanese woman to fly in space. In 2010, she boarded the space shuttle Discovery as a mission specialist, during which she orchestrated cargo transfer work and operated the International Space Station's robotic arm. The mission also marked the first time that four women orbited the International Space Station at the same time. Since retiring, Naoko has dedicated her time to promoting STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and mathematics to young people worldwide. I'm Georgina Godwin and I spoke to Naoko Yamazaki on The Big Interview. Naoko Yamazaki, welcome to The Big Interview. Now, Naoko, we all remember where we were on January the 28th, 1986. That was, of course, when the Space Shuttle Challenger broke apart just 73 seconds into its flight, killing all seven crew members aboard. The shuttle mission will launch, my God, there's been an explosion. Velocity 2,900 feet per second, altitude 9 nautical miles, downrange distance 7 nautical miles. This is not standard. This is not something that is planned, of course. I can see a solid rocket booster has broken away from Shuttle Challenger. That's what you're looking at in the middle of your screen. I cannot see the shuttle itself. There are contingency plans for the shuttle when something does go wrong, when something goes terribly wrong. We have wrong. a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Flight director confirms that. We are uh, looking at uh, checking with the recovery forces to see uh, what can be done at this point. 840, and we hear from launch control, the vehicle has exploded. That's the orbiter itself, the shuttle Challenger has exploded. We Contingency must procedures are in effect. Um, assume that the crew is not alive. Now, one of those people was Kristen McAuliffe, who was a schoolteacher. And for most of us watching that, well, it would have been an incident which made us not want to go to space, but it worked in the opposite way for you. What was it about that disaster, and in particular, Krista's fate, that made you want to go to space? Well, when I was a small kid, I was very interested in space, but there were no Japanese astronauts at that time. So I did not imagine of becoming an astronaut as my career. However, when I was in a junior high school, I watched the Challengers launch on TV, especially uh, Chris McAuliffe, who as a school teacher inspired me a lot because I wanted to be a school teacher at that time. And I realized, wow, space program, it's not a science fiction. It is a real thing. And school teacher can go to space and she wanted to give a lecture from space. That was very inspiring to me. 
I want the students to get a little bit of ownership. I want them to feel that they're part of the space age because they're the future and their children or grandchildren are going to be pioneering that. Mm -hmm. So I really hope to bring an ordinary person's perspective to this. Have you heard from some of your students yet? Yes, I have. They've been dropping by the house. They've been sending me cards. They've been calling. That, that's been super. Of course, the Challenger had a very sad accident, but still, I, you know, got so inspired by the spirit of the Challenger, especially the Chris McAuliffe. That's extraordinary because for most people, it would have been a, a real problem to see all of those people on the shuttle die. Were you not afraid at all? Not exactly, of course. The accident was very tragic and I felt so sad and so sorry for them. However, the space program overcame that accident and continued its explorations. So those kind of facts encouraged me to pursue in a space career. And so tell us then about the application process. Once you realised it was something that was available to a woman, to a Japanese woman, how did you go about getting on the programme? The first Japanese female astronaut was Dr. Chiaki Nukai. She was selected in 1986. So a year before the Challenger accident, she was my role model. And I was very encouraged uh, to see Dr. Chiaki Mukai's activities. And when I applied for the astronaut program, uh, the first time I couldn't make it. But on the second trial, I was selected as a candidate. And the selection process took almost a year. It takes you know, a long period. And about 1,000 people applied for the program, and only 10% of the applicants were female. So I would like to see more women to challenge for the program. Now, we often hear about the achievements of space agencies like NASA or China or, or Russia. We don't hear an awful lot about Japan, but I wonder if you could shed some light on what Japan brings to the table when it comes to space innovation. Japan was the fourth country which launched a satellite into the orbit in 1970. And since then, Japanese space agency developed uh, several rockets and satellites. And now, currently, Japan is participating in the International Space Station program as well. The only country from Asia. I am so pleased to see the international collaboration especially in the International Space Station. And Japan provides a Japanese experiment module, which is called Kibo, which means hope. And also Japan provides a cargo transfer vehicle. And we delivered cargo to the ISS. And Japan is also joining in the Artemis program, which is a deeper space exploration of the lunar surface and Mars eventually. So I'm very excited to see uh, more collaboration is coming. Once you'd got through that rigorous application process and you were in fact selected, you clearly had to train to work on the International Space Station. Tell us about that because you participated in the historic mission in 2010. I wonder about the months and years leading up to that. Yes. By being selected as an astronaut candidate was not a goal. It was just a beginning. And years of training was waiting for me. And for my case, I trained for 11 years. 
because in the middle, there was another space shuttle, Columbia accident in 2003, and it delayed all the space programs. However, the training itself was so much fun to me, you know. I enjoyed traveling to other countries and meeting with many people in each country. And in terms of qualifications, what did you need to have to be eligible? The first two years is a basic training, and we did like a flight training using the T-38 jet aircraft. And also uh, we had to learn a language of English and Russian. And uh, we had to learn the generic STEMS knowledge and a lot of experiments, techniques, and so on. So it takes hold of two years. And after qualified as an astronaut from the candidate, then we start an advanced training. Then we start more practical training, including robotic arm training or extravehicular activities training underwater and so on. And so what kind of work did you end up doing on the International Space Station? I was in charge of the robotics arm operation of Space Shuttle and the ISS. So I operated the robotics arms to install the Leonardo logistics module onto the ISS. And after the installation, I was as a loadmaster of the cargo transfer. I orchestrated all the experiment transfer from the Leonardo to the specific location onto the ISS. Tell me about actually living on the space station. It is so much fun to live on the ISS. First, microgravity was so much fun. You will enjoy it. And when I first reached space after the eight minutes and 30 seconds after the launch, I felt so comfortable in microgravity. It was my first time to be in space. However, I felt very familiar in this environment. And so uh, I felt, you know, going to space is not like an adventure, but it is visiting my hometown because our bodies are made of star stuff and the same, you know, atoms of the universe and the stars. So I think the universe and the space is our hometown. And the life in the, on board the ISS was pretty busy because uh, so many experiments are going on in parallel. So our schedule is decided in every five minutes. But still, after dinner, we have some uh, free time, one hour or two hours every each day. And during the period, we watched the hours together. We chatted each other. So it was a very relaxing moment. And you were up there with three other women. Tell me, because you're talking about how, how bodies work in experiments and so on. I wonder what happens about menstruation in space. First of all, uh, I was so pleased to be a part of the four female astronauts on board the ISS. It was a Guinness World Record at that time. And I hope somebody will break the record <laughs> in the future. Uh, well, you know, there are actually no uh, gender difference for the space tasks. We do robotics arm, we do space works, and we, you know, are assigned to each task according to 
our backgrounds or our specialities. So we are all equal in space, fortunately. And, but still, you know, I think diversity is important. So I would love to see more uh, gender equality in the near future. So for the menstruation period, uh, it's up to us. So we can select how to do it. So we can control the period with taking pills or we can just have natural menstruation period. It's up to us. Well, it's just the same as on the ground. We can use napkins and or tampons and that's it. It's not so much difference in space. And now, you know, interesting thing is ISS, on board ISS, we recycle water, which means we collect all the urines and into a tank and we purify it into the drinking water. During the menstruation period, some blood may, you know, go into the those recycling water. So to prevent it, you know, NASA developed a special filter to shut the blood from coming into the recycling water. So, you know, it is all considered. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm really interested now in that feeling of leaving the earth for the first time. Could you tell us what that felt like? Before going to space, Space was a very special place for me and very admirable place for me to reach. However, once I got there and watched the Earth from space, I realized it was the Earth that is special. And because the space was, you know, very vastness in the universe, it was so dark. And the earth was shining in blue. It was very specially beautiful. It was much more beautiful than I imagined. So now I realize the earth is special and the earth is unique in the vastness of the universe. I mean, it must have been a very profound feeling. It must have changed your perspective about life and our planet. Exactly. The earth looked alive, but the earth doesn't have its own eyes nor ears. But now human beings have technologies to send satellites and even humans to space so that we can see the Earth with an bird's eye perspective. So I think human beings are playing the role of the Earth's eyes and ears. So we have to, you know, create a good harmony between our civilization, technology and nature. I mean, do you think that that changed your worldview regarding climate change and sustainability? Exactly. So I really admire Prince William's initiative on the Archer Prize. And I'm so honored to be a council member of the Archer Prize since last year. It is very challenging to repair our home planet. However, I have a hope if we unite our wisdom and resources together, then we can have a better cause to repair our home planet. Just tell us a little bit more about the Earthshot Prize and your involvement. The Earthshot Prize is a global, prestigious environmental prize, which was initiated by Prince William. And last year, the Prince William announced the first five winners. And it covered air, ocean, waste-free, climate change, and all the nature. So five each year for these five categories, uh, the Earthshot Prize announces the winners. 
and it stimulates the solutions of the innovations and it will scale up those kind of solutions so that accelerate those processes. Space exploration by its very nature requires a lot of fuel. Can space travel ever be sustainable? That's a good question. We have to work on it. Most of the space vehicles use the green, very clean energy like an oxygen and hydrogen. But still, you know, there are some other types of the propellants. So we need to be more eco-friendly and nature-friendly space programs. And do you think that we're moving in that direction? Exactly. Because in the past, most of the satellites were using very toxic propellants like hydrogen and so on. But now many satellite manufacturers are using green energy. Do you think that the solution to our climate problems comes from perhaps out of this planet? Is space the the future in terms of, of keeping Earth alive? I hope so. Currently... About 50% of the climate data are coming from space. And, you know, not by just monitoring the climate change, we can utilize space more to restore our planet. For example, if we can outsource the power plants or factories, which have a lot of burdens to the environment on the Earth, to outer space, maybe we can preserve our environment on the Earth. And also, we might be able to use some resources on the moon or on some asteroids, which can be used for the power generations like helium-3 or more rare metals. Those kind of resources could be useful on the ground as well. I mean, isn't there a danger, though, that having used up our own resources here on this planet, we're just moving on to to pollute the rest of the universe? Well, space is so vast. And of course, we have to be very careful to maintain the space environment as well. For example, the space debris is getting a big issue recently. So after sending the satellites, we have to remove those waste satellites after its life of time and so on. And to send something onto other planet or asteroids, we are very careful about the planetary protection. Well, most of the asteroids or the moon doesn't have the life. That's a consensus among the researchers. However, about for Mars, there may be some small life like bacteria. So when sending exploration probes to Mars, we have to, you know, stabilize and each exploration probe, then send it to Mars, which to pro- in order to protect the environment of Mars. So we have to consider not only the Earth's environment, but the space environment as well. I wonder, though, about ownership of space and if this basically starts a, a new era of colonization. Now, I know that there is a lot of cooperation, and we'll get onto that in a moment, but who owns space? Space is for everybody. So nobody owns space. It's in a, based on the treaty and the space treaty, which was signed in 1967, even before the Apollo landing. And we agreed space is common space and it is not owned by anybody. 
And very rich men like, for instance, Elon Musk talking about trying to really leave this planet and go and live somewhere else, for instance, Mars. How far off do you think something like that is? Is it going to be possible within our lifetimes? I think so. For example, the colonization of Mars could happen in 20s, 30s or 40s. And well, of course, Mm, it is challenging because it takes more than six months to get to Mars one way. So the round trip takes years, about for three years. So nobody has been to Mars yet. However, yes, during our lifetime, in a decade or two, I would expect somebody to step on the Mars. And would those people still be bound by that 1967 treaty? Or do you think that somebody, an individual or a nation, may lay claim to the planet? Oh, still, space treaty set in 1967 uh, remains. So it rules the space programs. So nobody can own, even a company or nations can own the property as a planet. However, it doesn't exclude the private companies' activities on other planets. So like SpaceX wants to send some, you know, probes on Mars and or create some space base on Mars, you know, space treaty doesn't exclude those activities. Now, we've been talking about uh, international cooperation, and of course the ISS is a great example of that, with us astronauts from many nations coming together. As we speak now, of course, there's a, a awful war raging, raging in, in Ukraine uh, that's also brought new challenges to international diplomacy. Do you think that, that that conflict might have a negative impact on international space cooperation? I hope the current conflict will not cause a negative impact on the International Space Station program. Because International Space Station includes 50 nations, include Russia. And we made up a good partnership in the past decades. And I hope to see the continuous partnership among these nations. However, the ISS will end its life within this decade or so. So we have to move on to the next program, which is an Artemis program for the deeper space exploration. So in Artemis program, you know, which is initiated and led by NASA and including Japan as some other nations are participating in the program, but Russia and China are independent. They are not currently joining in the Artemis Accords. So I hope to see uh, the space cooperation will continue, but we have to watch on. Now, you were talking earlier about diversity in space and certainly getting more women up there. How can society encourage more women to get involved in space? Does it start at the beginning with education? That's true. Education is the key, especially for the younger age. Because uh, when I pursued my career as an aerospace engineer, I was you know, inspired by lots of um, school teachers or inspired by role models. So uh, I would like to um, see the younger generations to have more role models 
and to get a more education for STEM. Why do you think more women aren't studying STEM subjects? In Japan,、uh, the cabinet office is encouraging younger generations, female students, to learn more about this STEM, because we need more students generally to learn about IT, robotics, AI, space, and so on, because technology is moving so fast. So,、uh, only men is not, you know. Big enough number, so we need to see more females to involve in STEM area as well. And of course, in the space, because with lot wide diversity, I think the design of the spacecraft is more user friendly. In the past years, the spacecraft was designed for、uh, limited, you know, people only for mainly for men, but、uh, now. The spacecraft、uh, conditions is getting wider to accommodate more people, and I heard the ESA European Space Agency is hiring a astronaut as well for the feasibility study to make more diversity in space. So that is why we need more gender equality as well, and as a part of the diversity. Naoko, what are you doing now? Currently, I am. A member of the Space Policy Committee under the Cabinet Office, and also I dedicate myself in a space education as a president of Young Astronaut Club Japan, and supporting some science museums. And also, I represent the director of Spaceport Japan Association, so that we can create commercial spaceports in Japan to become a hub in Asia. And. If there are young women listening to us now, and I'm sure there are, what would you say to them? I'd like to say to the younger generation: Don't limit yourself by what you see right now. There are so many possibilities ahead of you, and the world is much bigger than your imagination. As I said before, when I was a small kid, there were no Japanese astronauts, and I didn't imagine of becoming an astronaut. But now we have. You know, dozens of Japanese astronauts. So the possibility is much wider than the imagination. So don't limit yourself by what you see now. Naoko Yamazaki, thank you very much for joining me on the big interview on Monocle Twenty Four. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of the Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle, edited by Steph Chungu, and researched by Lillian Fawcett. Thanks also to Christina Corp, founder of Space for a Better World. From me, Georgina Godwin. Thanks very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <music>